Hallelujah. Every blood-bought saint in this room confesses this morning that we are here because of You, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I thank You that we have joined the triumphal procession behind our conquering Savior and Lord, who declared war on sin and the grave and achieved victory over the same on Calvary, signed and sealed at Your resurrection. And now you rule and reign upon your ascension at the right hand of the Father. And you, dear Jesus Christ, the powerful and compassionate one, you exercise your authority, all authority, on heaven and on earth, which has been given to you in judgment over your enemies and in salvation of the elect. And so we, your people, rejoice because of your sovereign grace that has reached out to us in the deadness of our sin and called us awake in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, resurrected and redeemed for, redeeming for yourself a people. You searched the nooks and crannies of this earth and found a collection for your glory even here, O oh Lord. We thank you. We rejoice. Now as we open up the pages of your Scripture that you delivered to us, I pray that you would write, Lord, upon our heart, more reason to celebrate, greater understanding of our own salvation, and the ability to proclaim it to others. In all that you might be glorified, and the Spirit might continue to use us, your people, to champion your great name, that as many days as you tarry, more souls might be added to the throngs of heaven, who worship and praise before the throne of Almighty God, singing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. I'm praising the Lord for the opportunity to fellowship with all of you this morning, especially around God's holy word today. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 15 in your scriptures. In a moment I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the word Several weeks ago in our Matthew series, I mentioned to you that there are four literary elements, that is, elements of literature, the narrative as the gospel gives it, uh, Matthew's gospel gives it to us in chapter 15, that highlights some surprising elements of the glory of God. We've covered one of them in a previous message, and that would be the reaction of the people to the ministry of Christ. This morning, I want to cover three, the other three, and they are the route that Jesus traveled, the repetition of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and thirdly, the region where Christ is ministering in chapter 15 at the close of the chapter. So now if you are able, stand with me with your Bibles open to Matthew 15, and let us read together verses 21 through the end of the chapter. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. 
And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Verse 29, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. The great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seen, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. The disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message is Luminescence. Luminescence, that is the enlightened quality of an element on its own terms, Luminescence, as I've used it in this title and as an analogy or an illustration for this message, is meant to convey the idea of light created by virtue of that contained within the object itself. Think of a small toy with phosphorescent qualities like a glowing emblem or sticker. Think of those creatures that are gifted with that ability like a lightning bug that has a luminescence, a self-contained ability to light a small vicinity or area. There are different bacteria that have this quality, and sometimes I'm told you can go uh, exploring in a cave at nighttime, turn off your headlamp and still see because of the luminescent quality of various bacteria growing on the sides of that cavern. My argument in this analogy is to show that the Bible itself has luminescent quality to it. Psalm 36 verse 9 says this, For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. The psalmist says it beautifully and poetically, the luminescent quality of Christ, of the Lord, revealed in His Word. He says, For with you is the fountain of life, in your light do we see light. October 31st, is the anniversary of the day that we recognize as pivotal and foundational and certainly symbolic of the Reformation, where one lone monk drew a line in the sand not knowing to any degree the importance of that day and pounding on the door of the Wittenberg Church, that castle door, the 95 Theses, which were arguments from Scripture against practices of the day. And thus, on this Reformation Sunday, we can remember the Reformation 
And perhaps we can summarily understand the Reformation as a redressing of operative answers to this question. Where does light come from? That is, where does spiritual and intellectual light come from? What is the most foundational source of life for us? In the psalmist's words, indeed, what is for all mankind the most foundational source of light? The cry, one of the mantras, the sound bites of the Reformation was sola scriptura in the Latin, meaning scripture alone. Only scripture, only scripture is the light source in which we see and understand correctly everything else. Only in Scripture can we understand the spiritual and intellectual light by which to negotiate our, an understanding of the world around our path forward, our own decisions, questions like, what is reality? Who is God? Who is man? What is my problem? How can I find salvation? Origin, morality, meaning, and destiny, answers to the questions that have haunted the plight of all humanity since the dawn of consciousness in Genesis 1.27 are rooted in the authority, the primacy, the source, the foundation of Scripture alone. At the time when Luther nailed this line in the sand, as it were, in so many words to this castle door in Witten, on Wittenberg, There were many suggestions and many competitors for the light by which we see light. And so it is in the Reformation that the stand taken by those who were so convicted was to say that sola scriptura stands over and judge of the magisterium, namely the political rulers of the religious order of the day, the contemporary sources, Anyone else's claim to intellectual certainty or ability, reason itself, logic and process of human understanding in a formal intellectual sense, scholarship, extraneous literature apart from Scripture itself, consensus or opinion, science, tradition, historical record, philosophy, archaeology, culture, and indeed the preacher of the Word of God himself, all within that list. And any others I fail to mention are subordinate to the illuminating power of Scripture. All of these may be rightly understood as good and proper intellectual disciplines, but only insofar as they are subordinate to the authority of Christ, the authority of His Word. Cornelius Van Til has a famous analogy for those who have studied his work to demonstrate the audacity of proving God's existence by a means derivative of God himself. In other words, I know God exists because logic tells me so. It's a little backwards, he said. It's like picking up a flashlight to look for the sun. You see, God is the source and foundation of all things. He is the source, the pre-existent condition for all creation and indeed knowledge and intelligibility. God indeed proves logic exists. God indeed justifies and gives meaning to any and all areas of life, philosophical, intellectual endeavors. There's another analogy. Let me pick on myself for a moment or put the preacher on the hot spot. 
Last in that list I gave you was the preacher himself does not have the illuminating power to show you what Scripture actually says. If, you re- if Scripture is revealed to you in this message today, it is by the same power that wrote Scripture in the first place, illuminating it to your heart using an unlikely vessel such as myself. And that power is the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone. David Helm has another helpful analogy to help us explain some of the error in preaching that is common these days. He says that a preacher often uses the Word of God like a drunk uses a lamppost. Preachers often use the Word of God like a drunk uses a lamppost, more for support than for illumination. You imagine a man inebriated, you know, with a a bag of alcohol next to him, And here he is stumbling along and he finds a lamppost and he pauses there for a moment, leaning against it for support. When in reality, the purpose and the reason that lamppost exists is to light his way. But he, neither sober nor understanding the situation, is mistaken as to his surroundings. He's He's lost his better judgment. And oftentimes in preaching, the minister puts forth his ideas, his understanding, topics that are his favorite concerns or what he even thinks are felt needs within his body within the body he comes up with an idea and then to support his intellect or his own creativity he merely leans on the bible for support rather than opening up the scriptures to determine what indeed do i need to feed my soul on what indeed do i need to present to the body of christ how does the bible illuminate how then shall we live How does the Bible show it is my most significant plight and wherein I can find salvation? Let me list to you three literary glimpses of luminescence in Matthew 15. This morning I want to highlight just three literary examples of how powerful and resplendent the Word of God is. Today, this message is just a snapshot of the luminescent quality of the Gospels and three literary details. And this is just one corner of one Gospel in Matthew. And I hope if I've identified any of these ideas correctly in Scripture, they demonstrate to you that the Bible has illuminating power far beyond what we usually even dare to think. The three literary glimpses of luminescence in Matthew this morning I want to consider are the route, first of all, that Jesus traveled at this particular juncture in his ministry. Secondly, the repetition of the miracle of the feeding of the thousands. And thirdly, the region where he ministered. First of all, let's consider the route that Jesus traveled. Now from a humanistic overview of Scripture, from a merely scholarly standpoint, not considering Scripture as the Word of God, One might find any of these details I'm presenting to you just passing notes of narrative and not necessarily having much illuminating power at all. But I submit to you that such is indeed not the case. There's not a wasted word in Scripture. We are told, and it is true, that every jot and tittle is useful and purposeful and inestimable in its profundity and depth to reveal to us the heart of man and to show us the mind of God. Consider with me, The direction from point to point, that is the roadway or the travel plans that Jesus, his itinerary in ministry, was taking at this particular time. And let's see if we can't draw some implications from this record in Scripture that could reveal to us 
some purpose behind Jesus' travels. First of all, 1353, reaching back a couple of chapters. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So at this point in the narrative, we find Jesus in Nazareth, presumably in his hometown, speaking. He moves on from there, and the next point of reference I'll point you toward is in the next chapter, chapter 1434. This after the storm at sea and Jesus and his voice over the waters and his care for the boat across the storm and the confession of the disciples of him as the Son of God, we find their arrival at Gennesaret. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And the men of that place recognized him. They sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick. So you see here we've gone from Nazareth to Gennesaret after crossing the sea. Turn over another page or so, and in 1521, we find where Jesus travels next. Jesus went away from there after ministering in this section by the Sea of Galilee. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And this point is particularly, particularly interesting as he is starting to border some of the Gentile regions. And then we have the subsequent narrative of the Canaanite woman herself, not among the household of Israel. And the narrative unfolds the story, takes time to chronicle her interaction with Christ. We'll go back to that in a moment, but move on to verse 29 for a moment. After Jesus, leaving Tyre and Sidon, moves on, we find him again at the Sea of Galilee. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And then one more reference is in the next chapter, chapter 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now if I had done a little bit more preparation, I could have had a map and shown you Palestine at the time when this was written, and we could have kind of connected the dots to see the pathway that Jesus was taking over the course of these three chapters where it records his ministry. But suffice it to say, and if you'll take my word for it, it is nothing less than a circuitous mission. The word circuitous means the long way or the winding road. Not a direct point from, not a direct mission from point A to point B, but indeed an unexpected path. The route that Jesus traveled is different than what one would expect. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18 and consider how this message from Jesus later on in the gospel has already been illustrated by his circuitous mission that we already documented. In Matthew 18, verses 10 through 14, we have this brief Instruction from our Lord. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than 
more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I find in those words of Christ a beautiful reason for the circuitous path that Christ took, perhaps only to meet in a saving way, in a way that demonstrated the faith of one individual, this woman in verse 53 of chapter 13. When Jesus said, finish these parables, I'm sorry, chapter 15, verse 21, when Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy upon me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Then we have the record of this interchange by which the Lord sovereignly reveals her faith. And then upon that revelation and the subsequent healing, we have this confession of compassion by Christ to the woman. Verse 28, Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Can we see in this record that Jesus went from point A to point B to point C? Can we see him moving from Nazareth to Gennesaret, having crossed the Sea of Galilee, taking the long way over here to Tyre and Sidon, circling back around rejoining some outlying areas again around Galilee just to reach one woman. We certainly can see how this might be a perfect illustration of what Jesus had already declared the compassion of the Lord is represented or is in represent, and represented by the parable in Matthew 18. Matthew 18 and Matthew 15, go hand in hand to illustrate that God in His mercy and His grace will go out of His way, if you will, to save that one that is lost. Even when there are 99 potential hearers in this highly populated area. Even though the word of Christ might have been better served propagated, published, if he had simply stayed in the population centers. Our Lord had only three years to spread the gospel to Judea. And he did so in a way that was entirely counterintuitive to what any modern mission board or steering committee would plan. Imagine it for a moment. If you were going to systematically try to reach a people, an ethnic group, or a nation with the gospel in three years, would you do it on the path, something like Jesus took? I submit to you, no way. Mankind would seek to do it in a way that was far more efficient by his standards. But in stark opposition to the way we would think to do things, the path that Jesus took and the route that he traveled is itself an illustration of his grace towards us, his mercy, and his long-suffering going out of the normal way, taking the circuitous mission, the long way, to go out and to rescue the one sheep that is lost, unlikely, estranged, abandoned, unwelcome, the lowly, the poor, the downtrodden, the broken, and in this case, a Gentile, a Canaanite woman. 
an amazing picture that we see in the route that Jesus took. This is not a mere journal, not a mere chronicle. This is a picture of the grace of a, mighty, a God mighty to save, long-suffering in His compassion towards us, who will sometimes go the long way after years and years of your own backsliding, your own obstinance to the Lord. Maybe you're praying for a child who falls into that category. A young man or a young woman, not so young anymore. Because they have left the faith, apostatized from their parents, faith in Christ and good sound teaching. The mission that Christ took in Matthew chapter 15 to reach this lone Canaanite woman is a faith-filled promise, filled record for us that God may tarry for a long time, but He will go to great lengths to save His own. And praise the Lord that He does. I was in a meeting this week with a couple local pastors, and one of the pastors, all three of us, were lamenting a little bit our own spiritual condition, the condition of our flock, where sometimes programs, usually programs, are more popular than prayer. We were talking about this. One of the pastors mentioned a meeting that he had had this week, and it was a meeting to do some Bible study and prayer with the men in his church. Only two showed up, himself and the other gentleman who was going to lead it. And at first he said he was very discouraged, but they decided just to talk and to pray together. And that opportunity afforded them the ability to connect one-on-one. And this pastor said something to me. He said, I was struck by the inefficiency of the meeting, yet how powerful it truly was. And I think that's part of what we see here, gospel efficiency. God might have a calling for you like Jeremiah, not a single convert. God might send, send you or send another believer to an Islamic hardened nation to try to dig with the plowshare of the gospel and soil that's hardened through centuries of unbelief. You may not see a single convert in your lifetime. You may die a lonely death. You may be estranged from loved ones. You may have no one that writes a eulogy in the paper when you finally do pass away serving the Lord inefficiently by man's standards. Is it a worthy call? Consider the path that Jesus took. Was it a worthy call? It would be heresy to consider it anything less. Heresy to consider it anything less. But Jesus' ministry was not efficient in the way that man defines efficiency. But what it was, was following the will of the Father, whithersoever it led. By traveling hundreds of miles on foot to reach a single Canaanite woman, by leaving the population centers to the outcasts, the unimportant and the outlying areas, wherever the Lord led him, he was happy to go. May we learn a lesson from the route that Jesus traveled in our own life. If the work that we do for Christ seems unnoticed, unimportant, thankless, and arduous, if it is done for the glory of God, and if it is done in the obedience of the Father, nothing could be farther from the truth. Only let the propitious smiles of heaven shine upon us that we might one day hear those words regardless of the results on this earth by man's standards, well done, my good and faithful servant. You followed me into obscurity for as far as man was concerned for my glory and namesake. 
enter into your reward. Now, it's not always the case that ministries appear, even by man's standards, unsuccessful. Let me remind you of a record in Matthew of of a very successful ministry. This is John the Baptist. We read of him in chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Here was his message. You wouldn't think it popular. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And this was the impressive suit and tie that John wore, verse 6, for the cultural equivalent thereof. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now here we have a man dressed in very rustic apparel, to say the least. He's setting up his pulpit in the desert, where there's little food or water, much like Christ himself did. He's avoiding the population centers, and he's preaching a message, you have a problem, change. And thousands are coming to hear him speak. Five, then verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan were going out to him. Let's start a church in the middle of nowhere. And thousands are coming to him. Throngs on foot. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins, verse 6. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Notice John has done just about everything by natural means to discourage growth in his ministry. The important and prominent people, he said, get out of here. The lonely and poor, he welcomed with open arms. His message was, you're in trouble. And he said, meet me in the middle of nowhere. He said to the men who were self-important and self-aggrandizing, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And that's the message right there. God is able to raise up from these stones children of Abraham. John truly believed that. John's ministry was successful, but not because he followed man's means, because he followed his God. And God gave the increase. Which is more powerful, the calling, the decree of God, or the locale in which we minister? The human means, the human technique, Or the power of the sovereign decree of God, who has predestined before time began whatsoever comes to pass. The mantra of, you know, business and real estate is location, location, location. The mantra of John the Baptist was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He believed truly that God was able to raise up from stones those who would worship His holy name. The route that Jesus traveled, the method in which He ministered, the route that John the Baptist traveled, the method in which He ministered, are more than just literary details that move the story along. They are illuminating, powerful principles that have a lot to share with the modern church. This week, I read the confession of or the testimony of a former 
Baptist pastor who now calls himself an atheist. Listen to these words. This disgruntled man, first of all, let me preface it by saying this disgruntled man took a church and after so many years of serving, he saw not much growth, in fact, decline, aging population there. He said he counted 30-some funerals in 10 years. And at the end of his unsuccessful, in his terms, journey of pastorship, he had this to say after rejecting the faith and embracing in an overt way atheism and now blogging on the internet. He says, there is perhaps no greater evidence for atheism than the growth practices of today's large churches. Consider this dichotomy. Churches that are growing do so through human effort and human means, while churches trusting in God for revival and for growth are in various stages of decline. Growing churches are very much focused on human effort and demonstrate clearly the power of charisma in community. The same characteristics one can find in any successful business endeavor without any need for the hand of God. Now, in some ways, a just indictment from an unlikely voice. That is true. In many churches today, we rely more on humanistic means than on the hand of God. So how do we address this? How do we repent? We simply preach the whole counsel of God. We simply strive to be faithful to Him. We stay planted in an obscure small town like Cross Lake if God has called us there. We don't resort to human means to promote a mighty God and we trust that the Spirit will give the increase. And this is the lesson from the route that Jesus traveled. One thing that was indeed missed on that unbeliever's confession was that sometimes churches do expand and explode and grow even when they stand on God's word and truth alone. And when God is pleased to do such a thing, He will, and no one's going to stand in His way. But there is no substitute for true spiritual growth in the means that man supplies. Sola Scriptura, only the word, in the light that gives us light, can we see the answers to how to live our life and how to grow a church. Secondly, the repetition of miracles. Three literary glimpses of luminescence in Matthew 15. We've covered the route that Jesus traveled. Now let's cover the repetition of miracles. Why is it that, as far as I know, the most oft-recorded miracle in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000? In Matthew's Gospel alone, it's recorded twice and almost back-to-back. We've discovered this as we've gone through His account here, Jesus feeds the 5,000 in Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21. We turn over just the chapter and we see once again the recorded miracle of Jesus feeding thousands. Verse 32, we pick up on the narrative. He called His disciples to Him and said, I have compassion on the crowds because they have been with Me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. The disciples said to Him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and fish, and having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples. The disciples took them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied, and took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were four thousand men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. 
there is a harmony and frequency of this act of Jesus, blessing, breaking, multiplying food to feed thousands. Twice in Matthew's gospel, twice in Mark's gospel, Mark 6, 30 through 44, chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. In Luke's gospel, the event is recorded in chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. John's gospel, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. And so we see a featured and prominence placed to this miracle of the breaking and blessing, the bread and feeding of the thousands. Myopia is a condition of small-mindedness and narrow eyesight. If we look at this mere event, if we look at this event merely like trying to, in the gospel records, synthesize partial DNA strands, which is what most scholars look at the gospels as, we might lament the fact that this miracle is repeated four times, yet we know from the end of John's gospel that there wasn't enough papyrus in the world to record all the works of Christ if men set themselves to write them down. So in other words, why was so many pages of the Bible given to this particular miracle when there are many other things that could have taken its place? When we seek to kind of harmonize the gospel and figure this all out, we put the gospels together like so many strands of DNA from the original same body of material, and we might be troubled that there are repeats because it's redundant, we might say, in our minds. This, I tell you, is myopic thinking, narrow-minded, small-minded thinking. If the Bible, as the Word of God, repeats anything... It is because it is necessary to emphasize its importance. Do not let us for one moment be led astray by liberal scholarship or by just the way we read other literature and in lack of foresight and discernment narrow our view of what we are reading here. The real question is, is why is this miracle so important? The feeding of the 5,000 recorded multiple times is not embarrassing fodder for higher critical skeptics. It indeed is preaching the gospel to our very souls. And let me remind you of one possible answer to this question. Why is this miracle so frequent? Let me remind you of the redemptive historical significance of food in the Bible. Let me remind you of the historical significance of food in the Bible. It is tied directly to God speaking to us in His revelation, the message of salvation and redemption. There's three categories you could understand the significance of food under, perhaps. First of all, food is an object of probation. Probation being the key word there, or testing. Secondly, an object of provision. Provision, the key word, and then thirdly, of promise. And just an overview, jogging your own memories, think about the Garden of Eden. What was the object of probation in the garden? That is, the object of testing. Well, it really was something having directly to do with food. There was an injunction, an imperative, a commandment given to Adam and Eve. You may eat, eat of all of the trees within the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. So food transcends the mere nutritional value for the human soul, and it's used as a metaphor to reveal something to us about salvation 
and about covenant. And this is great, the grace of God revealed to us. So as you know, Adam and Eve failed that probationary period in that testing time. They ate of the forbidden fruit and thus condemned themselves and all mankind proceeding from them by ordinary generation to sin and to hell forever. Food is the object of probation. In Genesis 3.15, we have the promise of the gospel in seed form. We also, in the course of the narrative there, have the promise given to us in a shadowy form, but there nonetheless of the tree of life. Genesis 3.22-23, again, there's a picture of food that is meant to convey salvation, the, joy, the uh, truths of salvation. So there is a tree, and if you eat of it, it will be eating unto death, but there is also a food on a tree. If you eat of it, it will be eating unto life. Now, in between the final revelation of the tree of life, which we see at the end of the Bible, there's also the object of provision, manna in the wilderness. Manna is given, that is, food and provision to the Israelites in their wilderness wanderings as more than just the necessary survival mechanism to keep a people alive while they wander. It's more than that. The idea of provision here is telling them that God supplies their every need, both spiritually and physically, and He sustains them in the wilderness. Thus, manna was a picture of the bread of life, which would be Christ, the necessary thing. And we consume Christ in as much as that metaphor illustrates communion itself. John 6, 33-51, Christ self-identifies with the manna of the wilderness. He says, I am the bread of life. Later in the Gospels, we read, if you eat of my body and drink of my blood, then the image there is that you will have salvation. And again, Christ is identifying with the food of provision. And then there's also food as the object of promise, as I mentioned briefly, but pictured climatically in Revelation 22, verses 1 through 2. And this is a picture of the tree of life. The eschatological or the end goal of this picture of food throughout Scripture. That is, one day we will be able to, by God's grace, as His redeemed, who have partaken in the body and blood of Christ, who have feasted upon the manna of the gospel, we, His people, will be able to go past the flaming sword of judgment re-enter the terms of communion and relationship with God through the veil torn by Christ's own blood and eat from the tree of life and have glory perfected in us forever and ever. The picture of food is redemptive and historically significant all through Scripture. And it is the power of Christ's nail-struck hands to grant permission for us to eat from the tree of life. Thus, I submit to you and the repetition of the miracle of the feeding of the thousands is important emphasis for us that Christ, in providing for us spiritually, even as it's pictured in these allegories and in or and it's pictured in parable form and in these miracles physically he is our key to eternal life thus there is a luminescent quality there is a light shining quality 
a revelatory quality about even the fact that the miracle of the feeding of the thousands is repeatedly is, is repeated in Christ's ministry and repeatedly recorded in the Gospels. And thirdly today, the region where Christ ministered is also significant. We've covered the route, repetition, and thirdly, region. Where do we find Christ in chapter 15 of Matthew's Gospel? I want to zero in on one highlight, of one geographical note to highlight, verse 29. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Turning, turning over a page, we see the Mount of Transfiguration story unfolding before us in similar fashion. That is, Christ's glory revealed on a mountain, glory revealed in healing and what I've just read, but now it's going to reveal, be revealed in divine favor in the voice that echoes from heaven and the resplendence and beauty and luminescence that shines forth from Christ Himself, it says in verse 2. Actually, in verse 1, He led them up a high mountain by themselves. And He, verse 2, Christ was transfigured before them, and His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. There are two examples of significance of the region where Christ was, both of them on mountaintops. There are certain milestones in the Exodus journey that we're reminded of at these moments in the gospel where the region where Christ ministered takes on a whole new significance. In the Exodus, the Israelites, the children of God, also called sons of God at that time, moved from a period of wilderness to mountain and then into the promised land and eventually to temple. I was listening to a message this week that laid this out. We mentioned it briefly on Wednesday. It was so inspiring. From the wilderness, they were led to Sinai. And there was a significant moment where God's glory and revealing Himself and communicating His Word in tablets written by His very finger on the stone in Moses' hands was presented to His people. But they moved on from there. And then the promise was that God would dwell with His people and there was a geographical center pictured in the temple representing His favor with His people in the place of communion with, between Him and those whom He had called out of the wilderness. Now if you follow the regions where Christ ministered and the basic shape of His own travels and His own journey building on our first point, we see a similar pattern in Christ's own ministry. He is called out of the wilderness, even out of Egypt. He goes through His ministry, and as He enters into it, we find Him time and again in significant moments on a mountain, particularly and most prominently in chapter 17 of Matthew's Gospel, the Mount of Transfiguration. And then He moves from there to the temple, and there He issues the prophetic decree that the temple would be destroyed, but indeed replaced with Himself, as we find the book of Hebrews giving us the fuller explanation. And thus, in these milestones of Exodus, we're reminded that the region where Christ ministered, even in Matthew 15, is extremely important. 
we're also reminded of the prophets. And the mentions in the Old Covenant are too numerous to number. But if you go just to the book of Isaiah, and this is not an exhaustive list even from that book, you can find references to mountain over and over again associated with the Messiah. Messianic geography, if you will. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This messianic geography where the Messiah and His work is associated with mountains reappears over and over again. In this chapter 2 of Isaiah's, of Isaiah's oracle, it is the international prominence of the Word of God that is featured and displayed. That is, that which is set on the mountain is highest and most powerful and advantageous and influential. And so it will be with the Messiah's reign. The international prominence of the Word of God will be seen such that God will rescue and ransom for Himself a testimony of His saving power from every tribe and tongue and nation. Isaiah 11, verses 9, 9 through 12, verse 6. There's a rendezvous point for salvation where mountains are pictured. Chapter 25, verse 6 through 10, a destination of sovereign and consummate supply. And if you have time to study that at a later time, I encourage you to do so, because in that picture of the mountain, there's a feast laid out indeed. Just as Christ fed and shepherded the thousands strategically placed in regions where he ministered on high places and on mountains, so we see that picture prefigured all the way back to Isaiah's time. And finally, one more reference in Isaiah for further study. Isaiah 40, 8 through 12, mountains are an object lesson of the shepherding Messiah's power and His omnipotence. And so we clearly see that evident in the work of Christ in Matthew. Think of mountains in the book of Matthew. Chapter 5, verse 1, the Sermon on the Mount, a place of temptation where the en- enemy brings him up to this place, this mountain, and says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth of you, but bow down to me. Four, that's in chapter 4, verse 8. It's a place of communion with His heavenly Father, chapter 14, verse 23. On the mountain, He is transfigured as we've, as we've read in chapter 17, verse 1. And then the passion and crucifixion of our Lord is initiated on the Mount of Olives, chapter 26, verses 27 through 36. And finally, and this is the last passage I'll turn you to this morning, we have the close of Matthew's Gospel where the mountain region is important again. These words we read last week, it was fitting for us because of our baptism service. It says, I'll remind you in Matthew twenty-eight sixteen. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. 
And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So you see here the messianic pronouncement, the self-disclosure of all total authority issued from the mouth of Jesus Christ on this mountain, this high point. He says, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of who? All nations, recalling Isaiah's prophecy, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The region where Jesus ministered is revelatory. It is luminescent. It glows Even these details in the literary structure and in the narrative serve to highlight, to emphasize and illuminate the grace of the gospel, the power and authority of the Messiah. And even though, as we've seen a few examples this morning, most escape our attention, let us pray that we would see more as we study the Scriptures. And I would encourage you to study the Scriptures with a high view of what they actually are. Though our capacity in this life is restricted to contain its glory, that is the glory of Scripture, it's restricted this side of heaven. I pray that today's message and our several examples of the phosphorescence of the Holy Scriptures in these unexpected places would quicken our faith and they would embolden our witness and move us to cry, with the one true church of Jesus Christ down through all ages, sola scriptura, in your light do we see light. Happy Reformation Sunday. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power, the authority, and the grace that is evident in your holy word. And what we have read this morning, Lord, To say it was scratching the surface would indeed be saying too much. But we pray for eyes to see and ears to hear the treasures of wisdom and joy unspeakable and full of glory, Lord, within the pages of your holy word. We thank you for your providence through history, preserving this word that we have before us today in manifold ways. We thank you for the testimony, Lord, of those who have died for the faith, fought to preserve the Scriptures, even translating them into known tongues that we might have them today. We thank you for your grace in this regard. I pray that we would not take it lightly and we would not take it for granted, but we would take up the sword of the Spirit and we would steward it well for your glory and namesake that the next generation might hear and see the power and glory of the Messiah living and speaking through us and our testimony of of growing love and reverence and affections for our Lord Jesus Christ and His Holy Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.